I'd like to welcome everybody to what is going to be a fantastic podcast. It's going to be uh, another addition to our Giants in Chest Medicine series. On the line with me is a man who really needs no introduction, uh, Arthur Wheeler, M.D., Art, <laughs> uh, from Vanderbilt University. Um, if you've remotely been involved in the world of critical care and read an article ever, then for sure you've read the work of Dr. Wheeler. Um, I think uh, his being nominated to be a giant in chest medicine uh, is one of those things that gets filed into the category of obviously. And so um, without further ado, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Art Wheeler, who's going to spend some time here uh, discussing uh, everything in regards to his career and uh, give us all general advice, and, and we'll, we'll have at it and, and have a nice discussion. Art, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Kyle. It's re- really an honor. So let's go back. So you, know, uh, you, you did your undergraduate at the University of Maryland, uh, as well as your medical school. So is that ultimately where you grew up? Were you, were you a child of yeah. Baltimore? I grew up, uh, grew up in Charm City. Um, and uh, early on in, uh, as, as a youngster, my parents moved uh, to Baltimore County uh, to try and get, uh, get us into the best public schools that they, uh, they had at the time. Um, we were um, a, a very low uh, middle-class family, I guess uh, you would say, um, without much money. And um, so it really it was a public education that uh, was essential for me to get ahead, and, and that went all the way through medical school. And, and so ultimately that, that, did that help guide your decision uh, to pursue the University of Maryland, both as undergraduate and, and then as graduate school? Yeah, honestly, there, was, uh, there really was no other choice. It's, uh, you know, I don't want to turn this into a, a pauper's discussion, but <laughs> tragically, uh, you know, I think it all worked out quite well in the end here. You've, uh, you know, obviously had a, 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 you know, amazing career and the University of Maryland is obviously a fantastic institution. So, yeah, well, it's, uh, as a, you know, as a, uh, a junior in high school, my, the company that my father worked for his, uh, closed, just closed without warning. And wow. he was unemployed and, um, um, like all of my family, uh, we had no high school graduates in the family. And so he was unemployed and uh, had no education. And our family was in, in uh, real uh, jeopardy of losing our home. And uh, uh, we had a lot of times that we were hungry. And he and I uh, did odd jobs. Um, we, we worked construction jobs and all sorts of things. And... Um, not that proud to talk about it, but we we actually did a lot of time picking through other people's garbage to find things that we could fix and sell and recycle to make enough money to to pay our mortgage payment. And uh, so, uh, not to run down at all the University of Maryland, but the the fact that I could um, you know have in-state tuition there, um, both for college and medical school. Uh, that was essential for me to do anything. I, I recently looked back on, uh, I was talking to one of my friends, recently looked back on it, and the, uh, my undergraduate, a tuition of undergrad, uh, the tuition for an undergraduate 20, up to 20 credits a semester was $274. Oh, 
Holy uh, cow, seriously? <laughs> wow. No, 274. Now, there were some lab fees thrown in there in books. And things, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, oh, my and, goodness gracious. And now, and, well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, 40 years ago. But um, True, but still. <laughs> right. But without, you know, without public education, I, I would have, I mean, without public education, I'd be, uh, I'd be pumping gas in West Baltimore right now. Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be more grateful for the, for the opportunities that came along. I, I think it, I wanted to, I want you to expand on this because I think it speaks volumes then about also your, your father and the rest of your family and the commitment of, you know, as hard as everyone was working, quite literally to survive and keep the family going, and, and yet off to college you go. That's incredible. Well, there was no uh, there was no choice about it. Uh, my my parents uh, were born in the depression, uh, had been poor their entire lives, uh, and uh, we we all we always struggled uh, for for just enough money to have a car and some food and a house. And uh, so there was no question about it. From the time I can remember anything, uh, it had been decided that I was going to college. Uh, even though my parents didn't know what that was, uh, I was going to college, and uh, that education was going to be the resolution for uh, the poverty in our family. That had to be an enormous amount of pressure for a young man. Did it ever feel um, like that, or did it just feel like, "Wow, I've been given an amazing opportunity"? Oh, it was it was some of both. Um, it, it was some of both, uh, and you know, I, and I had something that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a doctor from from the time. Uh, I can remember, you know, I think every kid, every young boy wants to be a fireman or an astronaut or something for a week. Right. Uh, but as long as, uh, as long as I wanted to be anything, I wanted to be a doctor. And what, what I mean, what, what drove that? Uh, it was a, it was the personal experience with a, uh, with a physician. So I had a, um, uh, when I was about seven years old, I had a, a, a terrible bicycle accident. Um, and without going into too much detail, it broke out teeth and my nose and tore the skin off my face and really Holy turned cow. into a monster. Um, and I think about it now, it's, it's uh, you know, that would have been a, a kind of a, probably a level one trauma arrival these days. But back wow. then, we went to, uh, <laughs> we went to our family doctor. And, um, uh, it it was a very sobering experience because I, I had incredible pain and infections and this I had gravel stuck underneath my skin and uh, and so every day I would go to his office my mother would take me there and we would uh, I looked ter- I mean I looked grotesque and uh, each day I would go in there and he would uh, you know it was not it was not a thing to him. Even my own parents, you could see them sort of wince when they would look at me. Wow. And other other kids, you know, made fun of my appearance, and but I just went there, and every day he would, uh, you know, he'd cut off dead skin and pull gravel out, and and he would he just told me it's going to be okay, and you know I had no idea, I didn't really know what a doctor did other than that, and so for me. Uh, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy who uh, gave other people comfort. Wow. And you were seven. Seven. Yeah. I was that's in, that's in first incredible. grade. So, um, 
Now, I, and I had no idea. You know, I had no idea at all that that was a completely unrealistic dream for a uh, for a kid who's you know living well below the minimum wage. Um, but it turned out to be a great dream. That's incredible. So when you arrived at medical school, um, obviously, you know, going through college, I, the, the assumption was that you were going to, you know, kind of pursue like the family medicine type career, I mean, in your mind? Yeah, I did. I, I, I seriously did. I thought that I would be, and, and the doctor who took care of me, uh, I think it's long gone now, his name was Thomas Wheeler, no relation. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you were going to take over I, his practice. <laughs> My assumption was that I would be a family doctor, and in fact, even uh, a, a, probably a family doctor in Baltimore had a very, had a very small, had a very small view of the world. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to offer comfort to people, and that. Um, but at first, yeah, I thought I was going to be a family doctor. So ultimately. You finish off at the University of Maryland. I mean, your whole family's in the greater Baltimore area. And you pick up and you jump to the middle of the country. That had to be also quite the move. I mean, your family clearly, you know, was a, was a core component of life. I mean, you all, you know, struggled so much together to get you to where you were. And then now you're not even on the East Coast. Yeah, that was a, that was a tough. Uh, that was a tough decision. And it, and it was interesting. Um, my wife drove that. Uh, my wife and I actually, we met in college, uh, dated for a number of years uh, before we got married, but ended up getting married while I was still in medical school. And uh, she um, she had a much bigger view of the world than me. As I, you know, as I was in medical school and progressing, it was clear to me that I was really drawn to the sickest patients. I don't know why that was, but... Um, the sicker the patient was, and it almost didn't matter which discipline it was in. You know, it could have been a sick surgery patient or anesthesia or whatever it was. I, I liked the sickest patients. And, wow. Uh, and I had a, you know, I, like I said, I have a very, had a very small view of the world. I thought, you know, I, I like where I live. My family's here. I'll be a resident here, and then I'll go into practice. And it was... Uh, uh, you kind of had it mapped out. I had it mapped out, and uh, and it was a discussion with my wife before, actually, before we went anywhere to interview. And she said, um, you know, very uh, with great conviction, she said, "You're better than Baltimore." And oh wow! That's not to run down Baltimore in any way. No, of course not. But she said, she said, you know, there's a big world out there. You ought to go see it. Wow. So ultimately, Vanderbilt. Right for yeah. your internal medicine, and then ultimately your specialty training as well. How did how did how did that come about? Um, the I had an advisor in college, uh, uh, in uh, medical school, who uh, said to me that uh, at at the time uh, the last residency programs doing every other night call were Vanderbilt and Duke, and. Uh, he said to me, you need to go to one of those two places because they will make you great. <laughs> he said, you know, you're really good, but if you go there, they will make you great. And um, it, was, it was a trip here to, it was a trip here to Nashville. I, 
uh, you know, I, I didn't even know that well where Nashville was. I mean, I knew it was in Tennessee, but, uh, and it was a trip to Tennessee uh, to interview here that was just transformative. I've met people who worked harder than I had ever met before. They were friendly, uh, and uh, they really loved patients. Uh, it, it wasn't, although they, you know, they understood the technology, the medicine, that they really loved patients, and they, and they talked like they loved patients, and that captured me. Um, and, you know, Lisa, my wife, Lisa, said, uh, you know, when I said, I, th- I think that's where I want to go, I want to be at Vanderbilt, she said, yeah, that'd be great. It'll only be for three years. Right. And, uh, you know, we can do anything for three years. My wife said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and now we're year thirty-four. Um, so, uh, but it, it was just a—I mean, it just seemed like this just fit. That's perfect. And I assume that it was the same natural progression to, as to why you then stayed for subspecialty training. I mean, why go someplace else? It's such a good fit already. Yeah, it, it was, and and actually, the the real reason was. Uh, that I was fascinated eventually as, as I did my residency, I, I was fascinated with ARDS. Okay. Um, and uh, especially, I was especially captured by a patient. And actually, I talked about this patient at the, the president's lecture at, the, at CHEST just a few weeks ago. I was, uh, I was captured by a young woman who died of ARDS. And uh, at age 21, and I, I couldn't let it go. I, I looked at what we had done for her, and it was everything that was state-of-the-art. You know, it, 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 we did everything for her exactly like the book said you should be doing it, and maybe even a little bit ahead of the book. And she died, and I, and I, uh, she died on a Friday night at about 4 o'clock. And I said to myself, They're just, this has to be fixable. We've got to fix this. And that's what drove it. Yeah. And uh, at the time, Ken Brigham was the chief, the division chief at Vanderbilt. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the franchise here was the uh, chronically instrumented sheet model of ARDS. And so you could do uh, large animal research, physiologic research, uh, there were a lot of things going on here. It was a very exciting time for researchers. The faculty was pretty young uh, and very enthusiastic. And, um, you, you know, well, maybe you don't know, but in at that time there really wasn't anything called critical care. I mean, crit- right. critical care was a dream. It was what pulmonary guys did, but it wasn't called critical care. It's what some anesthesia people did, um, but... Uh, you know, there there wasn't a discipline of critical care at the time, and I, I started looking at this, and I said, well, how do I get to do this critical care thing? Um, and it wasn't exactly by default, but uh, it, it seemed to me that, you know, with the internal medicine training, that pulmonary uh, critical care was what what would drive that. It was a strong foundation in physiology to begin with, right? Yeah. And, and interestingly, the, you know, we... I thought that understanding that physiology would bring us to a cure uh, for ARDS and uh, septic shock and those other terrible diseases we were seeing. But I think as time has gone on, um, 
become less and less clear that understanding the physiology yeah. <laughs> helps you helps you to make the make the fix. So then, ultimately, you finish, and uh, what kept you at Vanderbilt then uh, for your career? Uh, well, uh, things were going really well, and I was doing uh, I was doing uh, some research that I thought was very exciting. We had um, we had produced. Uh, some antibodies uh, to uh, core uh, portions of endotoxin. And I, I also became involved in doing some research with blocking the effects of tumor necrosis factor uh, in the large animal model. And it was, uh, you know, and I'll come actually as part of this story to some great advice for youngsters, I think. Um, I was advised, you know, that in there's sort of two things here. One is you want to do you want to do good work, but the other is you got to build a career. This is probably even more pressure filled now, I think, for trainees. And so, I, you know, the advice I was given by uh, some faculty members was you got to make papers. Papers are the currency of academia. You're not right. going to get funded if you don't make papers, and you need to make a bunch of papers, and you need to make them fast. And so I was, uh, you know, going all out uh, doing. Uh, Research and and I, I looked at this anti-endotoxin antibody uh, that was being commercially produced, and uh, one of one of my uh, co-faculty members said, "You got to get that. You need to give it to the animal. You need to challenge them with endotoxin and prove that this works." He said, "It's a it's a lock. It's a certainty. There's no question about it. You can get this project done in a month, uh, and it'll it it's just." It's publishable. It's you know, right. it's instant so paper. Long. Just add water, <laughs> right? And uh, I gave the antibody to the sheep, and then challenged them with endotoxin. So it was even a pretreatment model. Didn't do anything. In fact, the sheep may have even been the animals may have been sicker with the antibody. We tried sure. every possible iteration you could imagine: different endotoxins, different doses, pre-incubation, post-treatment, pre-treatment, and uh, and it failed. And it, it failed miserably, and it was the uh, – so here's the advice for the young fellows. It was, it was a failed experiment that drove my excitement for doing research. If that, if that experiment – if I had given something that blocks endotoxin and given endotoxin and, it, and it, there were no effects – I wouldn't have been anything more than an eighth grader reproducing a, a science project in in class. Right. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been an experiment. It, it just would have been a project. And this, the, the failure, told me that you you have to play the game. You can't you can't sit back and know what works and doesn't work. And honestly. Uh, we we have a huge problem with that in medicine. Um, right. We have hospital administrators and people running uh, large organizations, um, and they think they can just sit back and common sense out the result of the experiment. And yeah. it doesn't work that way. I mean, it, as as you go through recent recent publications in critical care, you, look at all look at all of the things. That all of us were sure were a good idea at one point, and and they don't work, or right. some are even harmful. So right. I, I 
I think the, the, um, the thing I'd say to young fellows and faculty is you have to do the experiment. You can't, you know, don't shy away from something because you think you know the answer. Uh, you, you've got to do it because you, you'll be shocked how many times, how many times uh, what you think is right is, is just completely wrong. Well, I think it also demonstrated pretty rapidly. You can correct me if I'm wrong that, that this is a uh, this is a large, deep story and not just a simple "Hey, it's one molecule, block it, all set, you're done." Right? It was a goodness gracious, I'm just at the surface here. The <laughs> the story is extremely deep. Oh, that's exactly right. It, I mean, it it meant that it was incredibly complicated. And the you know the other thing that it taught me is that not just ARDS and sepsis are so complicated, but most of the diseases we have are. And that uh, just seeing a physiologic experiment, you know, seeing, seeing uh, 25 patients uh, have their PEEP level increased and oxygenation improves doesn't mean that those patients are going to do better. Right. Uh, so even seeing the physiology change doesn't translate there. And certainly seeing an animal experiment uh, demonstrating some benefit doesn't mean that that's going to help people. And it was one of the, you know, I did... Uh, mostly large animal and bench work with antibodies for, for 10 years. Right. But um, uh, it, that's what really drove me to understand that I, I had to do big clinical trials to get these answers. So, so let's, let's segue into that. Um, you're, I mean, you've obviously been involved with so many different um, um, trials and, and great publications, and, uh, and I would argue that some of that are you know, clear and obvious kind of foundations for the field. And so if you look back, give me some thoughts on your top three, if you will, and you can expand it. It doesn't have to be three. Um, but um, what are some of the, the trials or, you know, interventions or even just research, um, not even necessarily the paper, just if, even nothing else the field, that, that you're, you know, you're probably most proud of or say, you know, this really seemed to have changed clinical direction you know, everyday patients being taken care of. Is, is there anything like yeah. that? Yeah, there, there is. And uh, to be quite honest with you, Kyle, all, all of it, uh, you know, this just, nobody does clinical research in isolation. And this right. was really the, uh, this was really the privilege of being in the NIH ARDS network. Right. Um, that group of investigators, uh, were the most thoughtful, generous group of people I've ever met, and uh, very spirited and, and tough debates. Um, but, you know, the, the papers that came out of the ARDS network, I think, did two things. One, they, I, I, I'm convinced, improved the care of patients. The low tidal volume trial, the, right. the first hint at a fluid conservative strategy uh, after resuscitation might be helpful. Um, Todd Rice's work uh, questioning the, the need for or value of early or aggressive nutrition support. Those, uh, you know, certainly the low tidal volume trial and, and the fluid management trial, I think those really are game changers. But, but even more than that, I, I think the, the, the real excitement for me about the ARDS network was it changed the way people thought about doing research. Right. 
um, you know, it, it really wasn't okay anymore. It, it wasn't okay to study five people and say, because the physiology improved, we should all do this. Uh, now, it, now it was about, do, the, do we have explicit methodology? Do we have uh, clear inclusion-exclusion criteria? Somebody else could replicate this experiment. Are the endpoints of the study ones that patients would care about? Patients and doctors, do they care about what we found? Um, and that, to me, being part of the ARDS network was just the biggest privilege of my professional career. And I think the, the, the influence of the ARDS network on all of critical care research can be felt. And it, it's not just that group. I, I should also say, you know, the Canadian Clinical Trials Group and the ANSIPS group, uh, Really, we're doing the same kinds of quality research, but uh, the, at least those three groups together really made a difference in the way we were going to study crit- the critically ill patient. Well, I think you know, as as the outsider looking in, I would tell you one of the things that s- struck me that I that I draw from besides what you just highlighted uh, from, from say the ARDS network is also the ability to, to demonstrate that you can protocolize things in the intensive care unit. You know, it's always had that feel, I think, for someone from the outside. It's, you know, this amorphous place. Every patient's different. You know, you're sort of winging it as you go along. There's clearly, you know, there's no way to protocolize it because it's all different types of patients with different diseases and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, that's not true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, no, you're, you you're can exactly clearly right. protocolize it. <laughs> yeah, about 85%, maybe even 90% of the time, it's, uh, it's, it's, actually runs better protocolized. Now, there's, you know, there's still somebody, ha- you still have to have someone observing the autopilot, uh, right. but, um, but it, things do run better uh, when standardized. And the other, you know, the other part of that is, is even if you've done something in a standardized way and it turns out that that isn't the best practice, it, um, it at least allows you to find that out. Right. Uh, when, when there's, you know, when there's just wild-type practice, complete chaos with everyone doing their own thing, you, you don't know what works and what doesn't work, and it's easy to, to be self, self-deceptive. I distinctly recall I was uh, right after uh, the low-title volume paper had been published, and maybe a year later, um, and a patient had been transferred to our institution from somewhere else, and you know ARDS, and had a disseminated fungal infection. And of course, the they were had been using a very, very high volume strategy uh, from a ventilator perspective. You know, and the guy came in as sick as you would expect. And all we literally did was change the ventilator settings. It had already been on the appropriate antifungals, and two days later, it was extubated. And I remember, you know, it was. Asking, I believe I was a fellow at asking the attending physician, how do I best politely send a copy of the article <laughs> to the referring physician uh, to explain why his patient had gotten better? You know, it was just amazing to see how much things had, that, that change, um, you know, and, and that you know, different patient outcome. And it was solely based on following, you know, what had then had been, you know, advanced literature. Yeah, I, well, I always, uh, you know, we do thousands of things to patients, and I, I don't want to undercut your story for sure, but I, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always a little, I'm always a little bit cautious about ascribing cause and effect to. Oh, you're right. Nope, it. you're very, you're very correct. I, it was more meant to highlight just the fact that, you know, that this was. Yeah. The, the main intervention was purely based on the fact that you know, profound literature had been published. 
Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, the, the kind that actually changes how we practice. I think that's. I think it's true. And for me, so if you said of all my professional accomplishments, what's the one I'm? I think really was the biggest game changer. It was participating in the ARDS network with the, just a, a, a stellar uh, bunch of intellects. Uh, just incredible, incredible people wanting to do the right thing uh, every single time. And that was paired with a, just an incredibly supportive group of people at the NIH. Um, you, you know, the, the professional staff at the NIH uh, for the ARDS network were amazing. They, I mean, they have to follow all the rules for everybody else, but the support and the and the um, and the the help that they gave us as investigators there was just amazing. Like you said, it's a team, right? Yep. So, in a lot of interviews that we've done for this series, um, there's always been a discussion on you know, areas where someone says, and if I could go back, there was a couple of years of my research that just, you know, I'd go back and tell myself, you shouldn't have gone that direction. You know, you should have gone to the other direction. Do you, any thoughts on that? Is there an area that you spent some time doing research in that you would look back and say, well, other than, I, you know, the, the things that I learned, maybe mistakes made, et cetera, but boy, that was a dead end and I shouldn't have gone that direction. And maybe you alluded to it with the endotoxin already, but, um, well, anything like well, that? but see, I, I uh, no, I think the answer, the short answer is no. I there every failure, um, every scientific failure that I came up against um, served an incredible purpose to then bounce back and and pick up a new direction. Um, right. You know, so I don't I, I don't look I I don't think I would have skipped any of them. I. I there were some that were terribly disappointing. I, I have to say, you know, I had great hope uh, for the trial of uh, omega-3 fatty acids and antioxidants in ARDS. I, I, I really thought we stood a good chance based on the preliminary data of, of making a difference there, and it, it didn't. Um, so, I, But I, th- I think the mistakes always gave me something... Um, it always gave me something to move forward instead of just kind of being disappointed. And I, I don't look at any of it as a waste. Good. Um, you already alluded to it as well in, in the sense of it's some advice you were giving to, to people uh, early in their careers. Anything else? Any other uh, words of wisdom for those that are, that are early in their careers? And you know, You're still mentoring fellows now, and so what, you know, what are some of the things you're telling them broadly? Well, uh, some—I mean, some of it has to do with uh, with science, um, but a lot of it doesn't. So, the, you know, the first thing I tell people is, and it seems like it should be um, seems like it should be obvious, but you but you just have to be you have to be completely honest, and that honesty doesn't stop the the honesty doesn't stop with did I fill out my conflict of interest form or did I did I you know am I. Uh, showing this Western blot, uh, you know, uh, in its entirety, uh, really, what it comes down to is uh, is being honest with yourself. You know, did I did I really treat? Did I design this experiment well? Did I treat the the protocol fairly? Is the analysis the right one, not just the one that gives me the answer I want? Um, so, it, you know, being completely honest, and you know. As a throwback to my childhood, very, again, very early on, I remember my father saying to me in a, in a, in a moment where I was in a uh, tough situation with him, he said, the truth always comes out. 
And I, I think the truth always comes out in science too. You know, you, yep. you, you, you can't, you can't publish a paper that isn't true. Everyone's going to find it out. And right. even if it's not intentional deception, you know, you, you just can't gild the lily. You, you've got to be completely honest. Uh, you got to do the experiments. I, I tell the guys, you know, you, you have to do the experiments. We recently. We recently published a paper in JAMA with a, a great young researcher, a guy named Mike Noto, where we did a study of chlorhexidine bathing of critically ill patients. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that in our own institution, that was an unpopular study to do. Uh, right. In fact, uh, our hospital's leadership, and particularly our infection control people, didn't want to do that study because they already knew the answer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after studying 11,000 patients, we couldn't show that that treatment made a difference. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to do the studies, uh, and you have to remain intellectually honest uh, there. And I, I think the other part is that, uh, the, uh, that I've learned, and I, I, I know that there are great, um, there's great disagreement about this among people, but I... I've always said just give away everything you have. Just give away all the knowledge you have. Um, you're, you're not going to, you know, the fact that you tell somebody else about your experiment is not going to ruin your career. Um, I, you know, I, I had this discussion with Kurt Sessler not too long ago, and one of the things I said was, you know, knowledge and love, that you can give away all you have and you haven't lost any. And he said, jokingly said, did Wheeler say that? <laughs> uh, but but it's really true. If you're if you're a you know if you're out there uh, doing science, give it away. Let share it with other people. Work with other people. You know, go to those people who you think you're competing with and collaborate. Um, because it's not about us. It's about the patient. Right. Uh, so you know, share it all and. The, the less secretive and possessive you are, you know, none of us owns knowledge. It's, it's just out there uh, waiting for somebody with an open mind to find. But, you know, don't, don't be selfish. Uh, share what you have. And it'll, being generous and kind to other people, even the people you think are your competitors, it'll come back uh, to, to benefit you many, many times over. Now, you had also alluded that you were going to have you had some advice, you know, partly professional, partly personal, and of course the the border to that blurs because I think the advice you just gave would <laughs> settle just fine for most people in their personal lives as well. <laughs> but yeah. I wanted to I wanted well, I to circle back in case there was something else you had wanted to add. Well, the other the other I think the other thing that I, um, you know, I'm very proud of. It's not a scientific accomplishment necessarily. The other thing I'm very proud of is I was the ICU director at Vanderbilt for 20 years plus. And, um, and I built a place where um, we really were a team. And it was a team to serve patients. It was the team to discover new things and to deliver great patient care. And I think that um, that, you know, on a personal basis, uh, lifting up the nurses and nurse practitioners, uh, respiratory therapists that I work with, and have each person playing at the top of their game. You know, there's no reason for me to be 
uh, doing something with the ventilator, we have an expert for that. And let's talk about it and uh, talk about the best way to do it and get it done. And I, it's been really exciting for me to, to ignore the letters behind your name <laughs> and get you to do the best thing for the patient. I mean, what, what would any of us want? What should every doctor want? You should want the best thing for your patient. And why would you care the best thing for your patient comes from a nurse practitioner or a nurse? Uh, that's, some, that's, that's something to rejoice, not, not worry about. And, um, you know, and I think we're going to see that more and more. I, I, there are places, and you know this, you, you've, been, you've been around, there are places where teamwork is just a word. And right. then there are other places where it, it has a life. I mean, it's, it really is there. And I, to me, that's where everyone should be working because it, it makes the entire day better for everyone who works there and for the patients. And well, it strikes me that that's a that's a key philosophy for you, the teamwork. I mean, in, in both your clinical research and your clinical practice, and then it strikes me as to how you ended up in, in Vanderbilt. It, it must be that teamwork is also a key component of your personal life. I I think that's right. You know, at the about six or seven years ago, we we like most big healthcare institutions, were having all sorts of uh, turmoil related to finances and. Right. rules and those sort of things. And, um, and part of what went on was I was put in charge of uh, developing a critical care nurse practitioner service. Now, I didn't know anything about it. I really had no idea what it was or what it could accomplish. Um, but as we developed that, I learned, uh, I learned so much about the capabilities of other people and uh, how pernicious it is to to second guess um, anyone's qualifications or talents based upon their degree. Um, the nurse practitioners that I work with, and and we now have to take care of patients in in our critical care unit. Um, I'd I'd put up against anybody. They're incredible, and they have they they bring unique talents to the table, uh, and it's it's rejuvenated. Uh, the whole spirit of teamwork in the ICU again. So I, I, I think that idea is, you know, no, there, whether it's the whether it's the new ICU director or the the fellow in training or the junior faculty member, you just can't do this alone. You you right. you can't take great care of patients, produce research and teach others alone. You can't. And so, uh, and it's a lot more fun when you do it with people that you respect and love. I think that's fantastic. Um, we've been talking for a while, and I want to be mindful of your time and our listeners' times. Um, what what haven't we talked about? What what other areas should we discuss? Well, without pandering, uh, hopefully, <laughs> uh, I'd like to. Uh, I, I mean, maybe this won't be the finish, but I'd like to finish up by saying that I, I think uh, that the uh, American College of Chest Physicians, um, and I'm a little confused about whether or not you just use the word chest or not now. But, um, <laughs> but the American College of Chest Physicians is, has been a wonderful organization. And in many ways uh, throughout my career, um, so I very early on in, uh, as a fellow, I got to go to an ACCP 
sponsored fellows conference in San Diego and meet uh, some of my idols at the time, uh, faculty members from around the country. That for many years, the college had programs like that for fellows uh, where you got to see really state-of-the-art talks by the people who were right on the cutting edge. Um, it, it has been an incredible privilege for me to be involved in the SEEK uh, question writing. That's, that's the best education I get every year. Um, I, it, don't tell anybody, but I, no one should be paid to write SEEK questions because <laughs> you actually should have to pay to get uh, in a room with those experts. Um, and uh, and it's been a joy for me to be involved with the college in doing the board review, critical care board review courses, uh, and and the chess meeting each year. You know the the annual meeting. I think it's uh, for my education dollar. Those that's the best money I can spend. Um, even though chess is not predominantly or solely a critical care organization, right. Um, so for me, it, there's very much a family feel uh, within uh, the ACCP and CHEST, and the people there have uh, are just, um, I think, incredibly kind um, and and very thoughtful people who want to do a good job. It's not this is not just you know we print a journal or we make money or we run a conference. I think there's a there's a mission there to help uh, its members be well-educated so that they can deliver great care to their patients. Well, I think that resonates with you based on the principles that you've outlined, you know, in the sense of both um, always have your patients' interests first and a team-based approach. Yeah, I think that's right. What haven't we talked about? Is there some anything else? Um, something else? You know, some some story from you know early adulthood or something that I, you know that that you know I, I didn't uh, fire off the right question to to make you to want to share it. Is there or you know other words of advice, etc.? Oh, I don't... Yeah, yeah, no. The only other great uh, the only other great advice I could give anybody is you know um, marry the right person. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you, you know my wife uh, Lisa has been. As I as I told you, uh, it, it w- I guess it would be no less noble, but I'd still be in Baltimore, maybe as a family practitioner in a suburb there now, and um, you know, a an incredible thirty seven year partnership with my wife has been just she's uh, she's been a gem. She's given me great advice. She's been supportive in tough times. Uh, she, you know, spent a lot of nights at home alone while I was there at some bed taking care of a critically ill patient. And, right. you know, without somebody who understands uh, and, and is supportive of that, this, what we do is really, really hard job. So marry the right person. <laughs> I think that's good advice for anybody anytime, right? <laughs> but especially with this career, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, Art, I can't thank you enough. This was spectacular, as expected. Um, you know, just a, a, a wonderful, uh, a, a, a wonderful discussion, um, as, as I knew it would be. Uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks, Kyle. It's uh, it was great to talk with you, and uh, you know, I can't um, I can't tell you what an honor this was. Oh, it's honors all ours. Trust me. Um, well, thank you so much. 